0: Welcome to School of Movies. Inside Out. I'm Joy. This is sadness. That's anger. What? This is disgust. Uh, and that's fear. Ah!
1: We're Riley's emotions. <laughs> These are Riley's memories. They're mostly happy, you'll notice, not to brag.
2: I wanted to maybe hold one. What happened? She did something to the memory. Is everything okay? <laughs> I don't know. Take it back, Joy! Entry, Joy, no, Let's wait! Go. The core memories!
3: Ah! No, 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 no! Ah! Can I say that curse word now? Ah!
2: What do we do now? Nothing's working! Why isn't it working? Oh.
1: We have a major problem.
2: Oh, I wish Joy was here. We can fix this. We just have to get back to headquarters. That's long-term memory. You could get lost in there. Think positive. Okay, I'm positive you will get lost in there.
0: After a frankly astonishing amount of time, finally, School of Movies has come back to Pixar. It has been nine years since we covered Toy Story 3 in 2010 with Daniel Floyd, and our choice of film was informed upon by our choice of guests this time, because joining us now are Dr. Hunter Mulcair. Hello. And Amy Donaldson. Hello. Hello. Of Two Shrinks Pod. Uh, This is a pair of psychologists who get together every episode to discuss a different mental state each time. Uh, we started chatting regarding our We Need to Talk About Anakin episode, which, if you folks haven't listened, is one of our best. And the first movie I thought of that would be the most conducive to discussion was Inside Out, which, as far as I can, like, what, at least one of you hadn't seen.
2: Yeah, I hadn't seen it at all.
0: I'd no. seen it. Okay,
1: okay. But I work with kids, so it made sense when I see Yeah.
2: Whereas everyone who I spoke to about this show and about this episode was said, oh, inside out, amazing film, amazing film. It's, <laughs> it, was, it was overwhelming. How did you miss it? Uh, yeah. I, I think we uh, had a child that year. And okay. so uh, be busy. that is a very yeah, good reason that,
4: that would tie you up. But then very good reason to watch it. Now. Four or five years down the Absolutely, line.
2: Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and also like a little professionally ang- anxious. Like I, I watch these films and I get anxious that maybe I'm going to like learn something I didn't learn at university. It's like <laughs> professional neurosis, I think. So.
0: <laughs> but worth it for the uh, price of entry alone, I think, in that regard.
2: <laughs> yeah, CPT. CPD. Mm. Right. Okay,
0: so we've been meaning to do Inside Out, Sharon and I, for four years since its release in 2015. And it immediately at that point shot to the top of our favorite Pixar list, and it is only currently challenged by Coco, which deals in death and memory, two other universal constants for sentient mortal beings, that is. Part of why we love it so much is that our daughter Lyra was just turning seven years old when it released, which is the perfect age for a smart and emotionally sensitive child to have this story play out and the Mm -hmm. representational models of familiar emotions made clear to her. It helped us understand her and her understand us. But most of all, it helped her understand herself. I remember like she was hooked from the first trailer of this. Like she, Mm. she got it immediately because that was one of the first scenes that they sort of hammered out Pixar. And they're like, right, it's the, um, the, the dinner scene over the noodles when the mother and father are sitting on opposite sides and they've got emotions in their head and it's very clearly Mm. marked out what's going on? Because Riley's in the middle and all the emotions are looking forwards and it's, it's blocked in a way that you can know nothing about this film and get it within just a few minutes. Yeah. And so, yeah, our seven-year-old was like, right, I love this already. Absolutely. And just and counted to, the weeks.
4: To give you an idea of how much the imagery stuck and it's still helping, Sorry. she has a little anger plushie and <laughs> when she's frustrated, her safe and... Uh, non-harmful expression of frustration is to throw that plushie at the walls nice <laughs> and, anger um, management indeed and she's also got two little door hangers one for joy and one for fear and if she is i in have one room, for disgust yeah <laughs> but we'll get <laughs> to that shortly um but if she's feeling like she wants to be alone she puts the fear hanger on her door handle and we know basically don't disturb her unless it's really important and then knock first and if joy is on her door hanger that means that she's in her room playing or whatever but she's quite happy for people to come in and talk to her
1: awesome i love it
0: Now, the story of Inside Out is pretty simple. An 11-year-old girl named Riley moves with her mother and father from Minnesota to San Francisco. The house sucks, school is alienating to her, and she is confused and upset. Riley attempts to go back to Minnesota alone on the bus, thinks better of it, and returns to her new house, where her parents commiserate with her. The end. Pod's over. Done. Yep. (laughs) Well, no, no, we we do uh, a smidgen more than synopsize on this show, because... Uh, Because of Pixar's gift for anthropomorphizing, we get Riley's interior struggles as the colorful manifestations of her emotions try to find some harmony. Thus, much like the Lego movies, especially Lego Movie Part 2, we get a representational story translating real world events. It's riffing on Toy Story as Riley's joy feels a kinship and connection to her, almost ownership at times, as the go-to in Riley's life, and the challenge to Joy's dominance takes the shape of sadness, her Buzz Lightyear, who isn't new, but suddenly starts to interfere with the day-to-day mental mechanics, and thus the conflict is between these two dominant and clashing emotions, leaving fear, anger, and disgust, bewildered, and somehow in charge. It is directed by Pixar mainstay Pete Docter, director of Monsters, Inc. and Up, and this one is going to be tough for him to beat. It was also co-directed by Ronnie Del Carmen. He was a story supervisor and storyboard artist as far back as Batman Mask of the Phantasm, which we covered way back in 2012.
4: Mm. I'd forgotten he directed Monsters, Inc., and the relationship between Sully and Boom Boom is... You can see echoes of that in here.
0: So I'm going to start off with some questions that I'm going to field to the group. By all means, go as deep and tangential as you like on them. The first thing we see (laughs) in this film is Baby Riley... And the birth of joy inside her head. Now, when I first saw this, I was like, ah, right. So is this suggesting that up until a couple of days old, you don't even have emotions? But when you listen to the commentary, (laughs) it suggests that uh, this is kind of unusual for her to experience joy first. So what can all three of you guys tell me about uh, infancy and the formation of basic emotions at, at this early, early stage?
4: I was about to leap in, but I think I should probably defer to the experts in this particular case.
0: In this one case, we'll ask the experts <laughs> rather than <laughs> blathering ourselves.
1: It's um, it's an interesting one because essentially a lot of the emotions that we experience in infancy are around survival. So both of us, when we watched it together, we paused it and kind of went, hang on, what's Joy doing here
2: first? Yeah, why well, is Joy the first pri- – is the primary one? I don't know.
1: Yeah. So – I mean, it's a mixture of things. It's also that our early emotions are really driven by the experience that we're going to expect. So, the kind of cues we get while we're still inside the womb then influence what we expect from the environment. So, we kind of come out ready for whatever our mothers have gone through. Um, And so, for some babies, they come out and they're, you know, agitated all the way through. Others are calmer or more settled. Mm. But we were both really surprised to see joy there.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah.
0: So it is unusual for a baby to experience joy first time. What, which should be the first one?
1: I'd say probably fear. Ah. Fear, I reckon, oh. because it's it's quite a you know disorienting thing coming into the world. It's a complete change of environment and um, a lot of change in physiological sensations.
2: Yeah, fear and anger. Yeah. <laughs> so, ch- children sort of wailing and screaming to get get the nurturance that they need. You know, these emotions as a, a signal to others. Mm, that they uh, need to respond. Yeah, and I mean, it's it sort of... I mean, I, I sort of struggle to think of them as emotions at that point. Mm. Sort of, it's very primal, you know... Impulses. Sort of, they're, they're impulses, they're neonates, whereas, you know, a bit later on, you know, I think you could make an argument for, oh, you know, look, there's a, there's a, a child or a, uh, having, or, you know, an infant having sort of a, a warm, fuzzy emotion or a yeah. sad emotion or something yeah. like that. But I think I would have said sad is yeah. very complex mm-hmm. to have. Yeah. Whereas like sort of joy, happiness, comfort, you know, initially is good. Uh, and so fear also, and anxiousness, yeah, probably acu- accurate as well.
1: Yeah, as we're talking through it, I'm also thinking that you know, it's um, babies have to learn how to smile and express
3: mm.
1: happiness. That their early smiles generally are sort of reflexive or to do with gas, rather than, <laughs> <laughs> rather than genuine happiness and so it's not until sort of a few months down the track that they actually start smiling in response to things that give them pleasure so it's also kind of hard for us to see what their emotions might be
2: yeah yeah but certainly it's recognized as smiling as an innate function Yeah, yeah yeah That uh, rings true. When I
0: was uh, an early father, no one ever told me that babies don't laugh. So when I first tickled Laura, <laughs> I was like, "Oh, I'm tickling her belly," and she just sort of looked at me with these glassy black eyes, like a doll's <laughs> eyes. And I was like, "Oh, she doesn't laugh at all. We've spawned a demon." And no, apparently they, they just don't
3: now that's kind
4: get of the
0: joke mm. of tickling until later when they're like, "Oh, I feel vulnerable," and that's yeah. funny. But you'll you'll make sure that I don't come to any harm. But I'm still nervous and we're sharing a yeah. joke
2: together i'll laugh which is kind of what yeah. the process of tickling is yeah. yeah i think tickling is uh it's tension plus mm. surprise which is why it's impossible to tickle yourself except for yeah. i think like licking the roof of your mouth so and <laughs> it's also impossible to hear that and not actually, and not try actually that. do it <laughs>
3: yeah
0: it's worth pointing out here that surprise was the sixth core emotion that they uh, batted around the idea of including as a major character in this but Mm. it was concluded he would be too much like or she would be too much like fear
4: yeah Uh, they being Ekman and dackler mm-hmm. the uh, the two emotion experts oh, yeah. that were consulted over yeah. the uh, the mm-hmm. way that the film should play out i think if if you look at the formation of the emotions from a narrative perspective rather than a, a purely psychological one it does It makes sense that joy manifests in response to the fact that as soon as Riley is born, she is loved. She has um, that that feedback of parental positivity. The first core memory that she forms is one of being responded to positively. And... I, I am going to go out on a limb here and say I actually think she has a fairly unusual birth experience yeah. in that that mm-hmm. is something that's possible. Um, because generally speaking, it's not, it doesn't work that way because the process of birth is relatively traumatic. Mm. Um, the the first response as you guys said being either a sort of a a combination of fear of having been taken from this nice safe womb environment Mm. into this place that is cold and what's this and now i'm hungry frustration and also Mm. the fact that when she starts crying that's a manifestation of sadness when in actual fact i think that kind of crying is a manifestation of anger because it's it's Mm. i'm hungry feed me um, which is where that anger impulse they comes had to from.
0: make it uh, clear to children even if so they're kind of bending the rules to, yeah, to express yeah. which I think
4: mm. is, is kind of a, a, an element of a lot of this but again narratively to me anyway uh, I'm I'm okay with that Okay,
0: <laughs> but it does lead us on to a major multi-part question and it's one that we've talked about on and off on this show but here we can really get to the bottom it feels like we should have done Inside Out a while back because we've kind of elaborated on Inside Out since we saw it mm. and you Used it as a model at times but I'm really really glad we get to give it this level of focus now so it's kind of worth the wait but each in order what has been the evolutionary purpose of each of the five core emotions on show here how did they help us 10,000 years ago or before that and what challenge does feeling them strongly or not strongly enough in the modern era present? So we're going to start.
3: Wow, that is, that expansive is a expansive okay, so question. that's the rest of the podcast. <laughs>
0: yeah, that is a great question. Um, so we're going to start with a, a really simple one, disgust.
1: Mm-hmm. Huh? Well, traditionally disgust has been kind of seen as a rejecting emotion. So it's sort of, um, it serves safety purposes in a lot of ways. 10,000 years ago and now in some cases in that, say, for example, if you eat something that's dangerous, often it tastes bad and you do that kind of face that expels it from your mouth, there's kind of a protective
2: element yeah i took my kids to Yum cha today and it's kind of food uh, food that they don't typically eat and they were having none of it They're like yeah. oh, this is disgusting this is so weird this is sort of sweet and salty and sticky and yeah you know so i think
1: there's that there's, there must be something wrong
2: yeah and i think that and then that translates into other people other scenarios that kind of hmm. stuff and then You see it kind of go wrong with people where it kind of can transform into disgust towards someone, their own experience and their own emotions and things like that. And that's when it becomes shame, essentially.
1: Or particular groups of people or particular, um, yeah, cultures or things like that where it's kind of then… Drives the sort of hatred or also, kind of included in that,
2: but also triggers like I would say like social rules. Like yeah. So you know, there's a there's an appropriate way to behave in a social in a yeah. social group, and an, and a, an inappropriate, disgusting way to behave. And so if you adhere to those social rules, then the group will then become will be more supportive of you, and then you have a survival advantage yeah. essentially. Mm, so. Yeah.
4: so from an evolutionary perspective, then it's it's providing you with an important. A uh, uh, survival trait, I think one of the ways that that and and I think this is probably going to hold true for for most of these emotions. One of the ways that that is tricky when you put it in a modern context is that if you're looking at an example of for, for, say being disgusted by somebody who is ill in a prehistoric context where you 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 can't do anything about that illness, turning away from it. Is often sort of from a from a very sort of lizard brain perspective the best mm. way to to prevent yourself from then contracting that illness in a modern yeah, context where it can be treated and where it can it's it's not it doesn't have that threat anymore. Um, it then becomes a, a negative that people are still feeling that emotion towards it. Does that make sense?
2: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I work with cancer patients uh, in, in my psychology day job and uh, certainly people will report that that you know they've lost friends they've they've lost contact with their broader community or they're hiding it from their broader community because they fear rejection because Mm. they you know quite rightly so um, it actually happens unfortunately
4: Mm.
0: so anger what purpose did anger serve us uh, in our early stages?
4: You guys actually might be able to confirm or disconfirm something that I've said a couple of times on the podcast now. But my, I, I believe that anger arises from the hunger impulse. It, it drives that urge to kind of go fight, seek food.
1: It is a mobilizing emotion. Mm. So it it can do, it's kind of got that mobilizing defensive element. So, um, you know, it comes through in those early survival instincts around sort of fight, flight, freeze and flop. Um, And so it's a very primal thing, thing in response to danger. And so danger could be I've got I don't have enough food. Um, or it could be, you know, this lion's chasing me mm. or whatever it might be.
2: It's activating, yeah.
1: It's activating, it's mobilizing, it sort of um, physiologically gets your body going to be able to do what you need to do.
2: And, uh, yeah, I mean, certainly if you look at a child that's that's uh, angry or hangry, angry. as I always <laughs> like to think about it, you know, you, you, you give them some food and they often settle down. And mm. I think as an adult, like, it's, it's a often much not recognised thing that, you know, if therapy we kind of like are you having two three meals a day like how is that going on for you let's let's do that like let's try and do that i've certainly worked in a couple of places where i did that with someone and that was kind of a major component of stabilizing their mood and things like that so
1: or in my case because i work with kids after school if they show up hangry (laughs) i have one drawer of my filing cabinet that contains snacks (laughs) and before we do anything i fling a bag of popcorn to them go let's just sit here and eat for a bit yeah.
2: But, but yeah. yeah, but also like I would say anger is uh is is a interesting emotion because it's a safe way to be in a negative emotional space. You know, so that so like safe is in you're projecting outward rather than mm. uh feeling inward and so You know, people who have bad things happen to them, they can often be quite angry and you have to, as a therapist, push past that to, you know, you often have to burst that bubble to get to the the other emotions underneath that and sort of simmer it
1: down. And that kind of, it taps into something that when we're reading through and having a look at, you know, what we were going to talk about with the emotions is that while all of us feel all of these different emotions there's kind of cultural and social limitations on how much we express them yeah so anger in particular there's often there's you know family rules about how you express anger or if you do and so probably um you know working with kids a lot of them are really angry but they're not allowed to show anger yeah. at home because it's dangerous to show to show anger um and so it's an interesting one of kind of like you can intensely feel these emotions but you might actually be blocked from using them in the way they're intended.
2: Yeah, yeah. And in couples work, you can get two—you know—two people will come together and say get married, and then they've both got two different family rules around how emotions can actually be expressed. And so one might someone might have come from a family where no anger is expressed, the other one can come in and have lots of anger expressed, and so and it's just ripe right for, a, you know, uh, problems in the relationship mm. like that. So you have to like teach people to kind of someone needs to express more and someone needs to express less things yeah. like that you just kind of blew my mind the um uh,
0: the, for for thousands and thousands of years there has been a social uh ruling that you shouldn't express that much especially not blind anger and aggression in public mm. uh because people recoil from you they they, they try to get away um and especially if they're people that you're supposed to be working with or, or with your your family and, and, and getting on with on a, a daily basis, even if it's just ideally you should get on with your family, uh, mm. trying to keep a lid on anger is, is always a, a priority. However, in the past, say, 20 years, there's been a place where you could vent anger with no consequences and not worry at all that you're pushing people away. The Internet mm and it's mm. become this repository of mm. fury yeah.
4: yeah yeah for for people potentially who aren't or don't feel that they're allowed to express that in everyday life mm. and i think if you if you yeah. look at it from a social context as well it's not just what different family rules are around anger there's also very gendered rules around Mm. how anger is allowed to be expressed and quite often I think it's probably getting less so these days or it's being handled in more subtle ways but certainly even when I was little it was not proper for girls to express that they were angry. And that can be really counterproductive if you have the kind of anger which burns fast and quick. Mm. Because if you're allowed to express it, you do and it's done. Yeah.
0: yeah. In Victorian times, if girls expressed anger they were seen as hysterical and carted off to the lunatic yeah. asylum.
1: Absolutely. So it's exactly. getting better
0: than that at least. Mm.
1: Yeah. 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 We talked a lot about how uh you know in the movie it's very um riley's really encouraged to be happy and i think that gender role kind of plays out that you're not supposed to express mm. anger or sadness that it's kind of you know girls are supposed to be happy uh there's that kind of you know give us a smile kind of narrative mm. um and it definitely shows up in yeah anger and and sadness yeah, and, like and, as well
2: and what's interesting is her anger module is a male uh, mm. is, a, is a male figure, mm. whereas it's like is a female figure. Yeah. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Very specifically,
4: yeah. her anger model looks like her dad's.
2: Yep. Yep. <laughs> but- you know and I think and and you know anger like it does override other emotions you know I think there is that defensive thing you know and you see that a lot in films where it's not labeled there was one other film there where it was labeled which is in matrix reloaded where the neo is meeting the architect and the architect like labels it going so you know he's pointing out that the emotion is overriding all logic Mm -hmm. you know and I think that you know you hear about people in crisis situations you know or difficult situations they kind of act out and often maybe confront things and do things that perhaps they wouldn't do and sometimes that's beneficial and sometimes that is obviously harmful Mm. Mm. and so um, you know you don't want to be blowing your top at work Mm. but if you're angry and want to defend your kids against, I don't know, wild dogs or whatever mm. it is, then that's probably a good thing. So, yeah.
4: Well, that's what fight and flight do. It, it's something yeah. that uh, it removes you from rationality because ultimately your body needs to respond faster than your rational brain can instruct it to.
1: Yeah, there's not time to think it through. Exactly. exactly. It's instinctual. Too. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Uh, okay. So I suppose the almost the opposite of that then would be fear. In the fight or flight mm. construct, what purpose did fear serve
3: originally?
1: Well, fear is kind of
3: yeah, essentially run
1: away, um, and it instigates everything else. So you know our kind of emotional uh, core, sort of system for regulating danger and our perception of danger. It, is driven by fear and so it's about the intensity of fear in terms of how you respond in that sort of fight, flight, um, flop at the other end. So, if it's kind of an intense fear, you can either stay very, very still, you can run away, you can punch someone or you can, or if you're incredibly frightened and it kind of completely overwhelms the system, then you completely shut off and sort of play dead like a small animal.
2: Yeah, I mean the, the the way that this is actually something you have to explain quite a lot as a therapist. You mm. sort of explain this system to people, and sort of explain that it's uh, something that is not really under control, like automatic control. It's yeah. it's it's uh, innate or uh, yeah. what's it what's it the sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic, it's nervous system. Yeah. and and you know the the caveman that comes out of the cave and sees a lion,
3: yeah,
2: uh, and either runs away. Picks up a rock, fights, hmm. or plays dead while the person next to him goes um, crazy in the line, eats that one. Yeah. <laughs> that, ca- that caveman has kids. Yeah. The other one doesn't. And so we, that's how we've kind of picked up that emotional system
1: and then the the tricky thing well with all of the emotions but particularly with fear the more times that you fear it a things the more that system becomes reinforced as important and so the stronger your response gets and the more likely it is that something is going to kick that system into gear so it's it's quite adaptive but often to people it doesn't feel adaptive
2: yeah and and, and a great example is um food poisoning if you've ever i don't know Alex Sharon if you've ever you know had a dodgy curry or a dodgy mm-hmm. asian do you ever eat that do you ever eat that dish again? I, from the same place? You've still
4: got issues about chicken that might be slightly <laughs> out of I, date. I ate you? this
0: one piece of chicken this one time, and I was like, it smells a bit funny, and you were like, oh, it's fine. <laughs> it was not fine. Mm.
2: <laughs> and, yeah, and, and, yeah and that's a case of of single uh, a, a single instance learning and and that obviously, to do with food that's a very powerful mm. learning thing uh and and so we're sort of wired to pick up anxiety and fear around certain things a bit more than other things but yeah, yeah. so controlled pretty... fear equates to caution then
4: mm. yeah well that, yeah. actually thinking about it you're more cautious about me potentially eating wheat than i am
0: hmm. she's <laughs> a celiac so i have to watch make yeah. sure she doesn't gobble down something that's been in a pan that's absolutely. had absolutely
4: but wh- whereas I'm like oh it's fine I'll just have a tummy ache for a couple of weeks if it goes wrong no. Alex is like no absolutely not <laughs> 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 he's very protective um, um,
0: but oh actually that that right. does uh, ring a bell is, is would this be why we are hardwired as a species to be wary of snakes because it's one of the things that yeah. just kept turning up in our early stages and for thousands and thousands of years it was like don't go near that snake when, especially when it hisses at you mm. and so yep. that kind of makes us recoil and and uh, avoid them
3: yeah
4: and as i understand it that response is is kind of it's become to anything that moves in an uncanny way Mm. because snakes the way their muscular musculature works we don't recognize how they move so fast and so um, erratically. So, if
2: it has that uncanny yeah. movement, we yeah. want to get away. Exactly. That sort of non mammalian kind of movement, mm-hmm. you know, I think. Um, yeah, certainly studies show that uh, you are more likely to be phobic of something that is potentially dangerous to you. Not that Not that you can definitely be phobic to things that aren't, but mm-hmm. uh, you can, be, you know, you're more likely to have a spider phobia than, say, a frog phobia, yeah. you know, that kind of thing.
0: Um, this is this affects other mammals as well. Have you ever seen um, videos on YouTube of cats being introduced to cucumbers?
1: Yes. If you, while
0: a cat's <laughs> eating or drinking, you just quietly yeah. put a small cucumber behind it, or just a, even a big one. Flip out. And then, as soon as they like, they'll carry on eating, and then they'll turn and see it, and then they will almost always leap into the air and run away because yeah. part of their survival matrix says snake and yep. then gets them the hell away from it. I snake, snake,
2: snake. Oh, wow, yeah. I did not know that. Yeah, That's you don't guy, watch many cat videos as I do. I, I, <laughs> I, 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 oh. I'm not sure if you listen to our public. Amy's maybe it's definitely the cat you person. You love cat just <laughs> yeah. <peaches> that much, do <laughs> <aren't you>? Yep. <laughs>
0: so yeah it's uh uh, you know cats are even more jittery about snakes than we are that they they extend that to cucumbers Mm. yeah um have we talked about like why fear can be debilitating yeah on a grand cultural scale because i mean it feels like that certain grand cultural fears are now able to be spread about digitally and created out of nothing
1: it's also that you can pass fear down intergeneration intergenerationally as well um so there's a lot of research being done say with um survivors of the holocaust and then their children and grandchildren they're doing um, mri studies and then uh interviews and things like that on a regular basis and each generation still has a stronger fear response than the general population, and so there's lots to be said for that intergenerational thing of we expect what our parents have experienced, Mm. and it's not a, you know, deliberate transmission, it's something that happens biologically and socially, Uh, but it kind of, it definitely fear is, you know, generalizable, and it's something that, you know, again, for that evolutionary thing, if you ignore that the person next to you is terrified, then you might be missing out on a pretty big dangerous yeah, thing. Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, and I think just even just on a less complicated level, if you grow up with an anxious parent, hmm. then you learn to fear what they fear because you don't, you know, that's how you learn about the world. I hmm. grew up being quite anxious in the water, hmm. in in the ocean. Um, and, you know, and I, it wasn't until years later that I realized that my dad uh, – Needed uh, like wore glasses and wouldn't wear them when he was swimming and then couldn't see me, and so he's always anxious. Mm, and so, right. I have this like this fear about ang- uh, about being in the water that's probably not uh, on the level with my swimming ability, that kind of thing. So, mm. and I think, yeah, fear, when, once that kind of gets, uh, you know, exacerbated, we kind of get locked into it. And the thing about anxiety and fear is that we don't, we're sort of impervious to logic, mm. um, or it's harder to be logical about. Uh, the risks and things, and we kind of just get locked into that, so I mean you see that with people who are unwell and they 're worried that it's going you know cancer 's going to come back when they 've been told it won 't, and things like that, but also I think you were saying socially like that that you know that you sort of see around the world at the moment that people you know are, be afraid of this and be afraid of that, and they 're impervious to actual logic saying no you, you don 't need to be mm. afraid of that so
0: statistically speaking it's very 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 unlikely that your child will be autistic and even if they are it's still better than them being dead from measles you might want to vaccinate uh-huh. them for example
2: <laughs> yep yeah, it's worth the risk
0: <laughs> anyway um yep. so uh, moving on uh, what evolutionary benefits does joy serve
4: my theory on this and i'm i'm going to right (laughs) i'm pretty sure somebody else has has had this theory at some point i didn't come up with it totally independently but i i kind of looking at the the six core emotions if we include surprise Mm -hmm. i've kind of organized them on a a line in terms of what direction they prompt you to move in and Mm -hmm. how intense that Um, prompt is so at the far end you've got anger is a prompt to move towards something really hard so you can attack it at the other end fear is a prompt to move away from something really hard so that you can run away from it disgust is a turn away from something rather than a forceful runaway Mm -hmm. and Joy is the kind of the opposite of that. It's a it's a gentle t- well, not necessarily gentle, but it's a a turn towards something. It's a, a movement towards something that's going to provide you with, from a purely survival perspective, is going to provide you with uh, food or safety or um, some kind of positive
2: reinforcement.
4: One of the we, things we that-
2: seek, we seek it out, don't we? we exactly. We, we seek yeah. out. We seek yeah. out a nice meal with a, mm. a, a nice a nice movie whatever it might be yeah yeah
4: and that that does all seem to connect in with the idea of of when you are a newborn you need to turn towards your mother you need to turn mm. towards your um your family unit and it's it it sort of fits in with that whole thing about why we see faces in everything because part of mm. what we're geared towards is to turn towards faces that sense of connection mm. is is a very strong positive for us as humans because we're we're born so weak and vulnerable if there wasn't another person there to give us or another being shall we say there to give us some kind of nurturance and support we literally wouldn't survive more than a day or two out of the womb yeah. so um so from that angle in terms of the evolutionary i think that's what um, what joy serves I think it's really interesting that if you look at, at the emotions that we're presented with most of them are negative most of mm. them are to do with either turning away or in the case of anger moving towards but so overwhelmingly that it can feel negative um, and joy is that kind of single <laughs> spot of sunshine mm. in all
2: of it <laughs> yeah definitely
1: yeah and it's one that you know, serves that connecting function all the way through your life and is definitely needed, particularly in the first sort of, you know, three, four years of life. It's needed for brain development and for all sorts of things, having that connection with other people.
2: Yeah, it's pretty important. Like, otherwise, the parents would be like, well, why would I hang out with this thing that keeps me awake all night? Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, hypothetically,
4: <laughs> you see, this is this is the laughter of recognition. <laughs> <laughs>
2: the, uh, the 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 other the other thing that I was thinking about in terms of if, if you want to think about. Uh, emotions serving a a function um many years ago when i was doing some study i came across theories of like some self-regulation theories of behavior and sort of thinking about that that emotion positive affect and negative affects a positive emotion and negative emotion are sort of regulatory in terms of your behavior and your function and so essentially like if you're achieving a goal like if you achieve something that feels good right and Mm -hmm. But when you achieve a goal you feel good and then what do you do you you frequently you kind of back off it's sort of it's a it's a signal in the loop to sort of say well you know we've achieved this we can stop expending energy here um and the vice versa, the negative affect is sort of is a signal that, you know, hang on, the what I'm meant to have done and what I have done is there's a gap there. And so, you know, and I need to activate to move towards that thing. Um, and so I can kind of get to a place of, mm. of rest, of, of comfort and things like that. And I think, you know, in that, you know, that in, you know, taking sort of step further that's important in terms of therapy like what you want to do is what do you want to do somebody comes in depressed you try and get them to be active you know the mainstay therapy approach is in behavioral activation get them to do something that feels good get them to do something that feels a sense of mastery like you know washing the dishes or whatever and um frequently people start feeling better they might not be happy but Mm. they might but they won't be necessarily as down dejected that Mm. kind of stuff so you know i think joy joy partnered with sadness is kind of really important uh emotional uh evolutionary kind of things behavioral things so uh
0: and and what are the uh downsides of feeling joy too much or indeed seeking out joy too much something just occurred to me so i've got a big one here so like i'd like to hear what you guys have got to say and then i'll drop my truth bomb
1: I think um, when, like, about five minutes into us watching the movie together, I sort of rolled my eyes and said, so, Joy is delusional. So, <laughs> I think, <laughs> like, like it, it can be unrealistic. I think in terms of a, you know, therapeutic setting, often you see people who come in and their goal is to be happy all of the time. And it, for, you know, most people that's just not, the way life works there's ups and downs and um you might want things to be better but it's it's often unrealistic to expect to be joyful all of the time so I think there's quite a cultural narrative that you're supposed to be happy that you're supposed to seek the things that make you Mm. happy Mm. and um sort of a lot of self-blame can come with that if people are in a situation that isn't happy Mm. it's kind of like what am I doing wrong
4: that's right and the irony of that is that the more why am I not happy I'm supposed to be happy that you feel the less happy you're likely to be able to be
1: absolutely yep
4: Mm. I think as well if you we we don't really get the explanation for it until later in the film when uh, Riley's mum comes to her in a room and says about you know you you being happy really helps us that's our happy Mm. girl it although you don't get that spelled out until that point, you can then kind of retrospectively think of it as joy in Riley is dysfunctional from a fairly early age because she Mm. would have been programmed with those messages fairly early on Mm. that joy is the response, is the, the expression that gets the most positive response from the people around her. So she would subconsciously push that emotion as much as possible
0: if you look at the Mm. memories of her day it's just yellow 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 Mm. yellow 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 the standard is Mm. a massive helping of joy with a few bits of everyone else Um, yeah yeah.
2: the the parents are protective of her and then then you know there was that bit where she she, the, the, the parents are looking sad so she's like let's let's play hockey let's let's kind of change the the thing
1: i think it's also um you know it can be invalidating both so externally, the parents kind of you know keep on asking her if she's happy rather than sort of you know how are things are sort of Actually a, tending to her tending yeah. to to that, but then also internally joy invalidates the other emotions, she pushes them away, like sadness in particular, it's kind of like nup, nah, get out of here, yeah stay inside the circle sadness yeah That's exactly, it. yeah, it's not always positive.
0: This all uh, plays into my on-the-spot theory, and uh, you know it's going to be be similar to a lot of other things that I've said. But societally speaking, culturally speaking, uh, if you, uh, it's often said that there's about ten percent of people in the world who are genuinely good and are trying to actually help the world and move things forward. Ten percent of the world are straight up evil and trying to hold things back and just act- actively going out of their way to make things worse or to just make things better for themselves at the expense of everyone else. And the 80% in the middle just don't care that much. That's (laughs) like, that's why you get massive amounts of non voter turnout Um, Mm -hmm. because the four emotions of disgust, anger, fear, and sadness are fecking exhausting just to be bombarded by that all the time. So it is natural to thus seek out a little amount of joy all the time, watching TV, eating the same food, and just comforts which equate to a minor amount of joy that is some sort of reliable recharge at the end of the day before you then have to go to work in your cubicle. It makes sense that 80% of the population is effectively kind of caught in a loop of, of just eating and consuming that minor amount of joy because the rest of the emotions are too overwhelming to try to fight against
4: yeah i would say if you think of it in terms of the the body and the mind are constantly trying to return to a state of balance of, of homeostasis they're, mm-hmm. they're trying to mm. Uh, counter every extreme that acts upon us from the outside with something that will bring us back to the middle. A
0: place of safety.
4: Exactly. Mm. And and as you say, of recharge as well. Trying to seek joy because in the modern era, and especially in the modern communications era, it's not so much that there is more terrible in the world, but we're more aware Mm. of all the terrible in the world. And sometimes it can be very, very hard to get away from
0: yeah we're Um, being presented with sharp examples of things that would inspire disgust anger fear Mm. sadness
4: exactly and and so to (laughs) to achieve that sense of balance and homeostasis even just briefly it's not enough sometimes just to allow those negative things to drift away because they don't you have to actively look for something that is going to inspire joy in you but it it, the the counter of that is that it then doesn't inspire joy because it's fighting against such a hard pull in the opposite direction all it can do is bring you to the middle
0: there's only so much a cat Mm. video can do
4: well yeah
1: (laughs) (laughs) great trick that's why we need thousands of them (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: okay now i'm actually going to save sadness for later because that's the theme of this film so we'll come back to the evolutionary benefit of sadness is that
3: cool Mm -hmm. yep
0: OK, now in class, when Riley starts crying over Minnesota, which she's left behind, and then she just stops. Is what she's experiencing here best described as an emotional breakdown or is it something else? This is when joy and sadness get sucked up the pipe and yeah. taken out of her, um, the main part of her head.
2: <laughs> Did you look get each other? To take yeah. it? You go.
0: What is it well, called well, when, I- when you have an absence of joy and, and sadness, and just fear, disgust, and uh, anger are driving?
2: I mean, she, she, look, I, I'm not sure exactly. I, I would call it. She looks detached to me. Yeah. She, she She looks shut. She looks shut down. You know, there's a. You know, you can sort of see on her face uh, and. And then, like, that sort of persists for the rest of the day. There's this kind of, like... She's immobilized. Yeah, she's immobilized. And then what comes out later is they have a fight at dinner time, you know, like and then she kind of shuts off and retreats to her room. You know, there's there's not much... She's not not in touch with a lot of stuff, and that's sort of symbolically shown through the the islands, you know, kind of she can't get in touch with those things Mm. because Mm. her happiness, her sadness is kind of, uh, I don't know, Dissipated yeah or, or I don't know I don't know how I describe it yeah what do you think
1: it's it's an interesting one because um, I think there's something about the word breakdown that mm. gives me pause um, <laughs> I'm not quite sure what that is, but I think um, in a way it makes complete sense to me that um, you know when when faced with a task of standing up in front of a class as a you know a kid in a new school and having to describe yourself in that way of course you would collapse
2: and and also can I just interrupt like who lets their child go to school at a new school (laughs) without dropping them off they're just like send her in there like she's on her own she's on her own
1: she's on her own
2: there are many times when these parents are
0: not in touch with what they should be doing for for her like I said when they're eating noodles I'm like they should have gone out to dinner tonight like this is their first (laughs) proper night together in a new town Go walk around San Francisco. It's gorgeous. Eat anywhere apart from that broccoli pizza parlor.
2: Yeah, Yeah. and and not be in the house that looks like out of out of GTA San Andreas.
0: But these parents are not on the ball. They're too preoccupied with their own stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah, Yeah. I mean, it's like it's it's what I actually quite liked about this film was that for once it was a Disney Pixar. Animated movie, child movie, where it wasn't parental death that was the yeah. the 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 driving hook. Force. The driving hook. Yeah. It was like a very relatable instance of. Yeah. Um, parents being absent for whatever reason Mm. rather than kind of like oh look this is the start of funny nemo it's really great oh the mother died a little bit of a downer when you've got like young kids to try and explain it to them but um you know i think it's quite relatable you know and i think you know what she goes through is kind of a pretty understandable set of emotions Mm. of like you know uh she starts reflecting on the past. She starts reflecting on where she's been. And she's like, oh, hang on. This, this is no good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and where am I? And uh, everything's different. And who am I? And everything and, comes, comes into question.
1: And she recovers remarkably quickly, like, over the course of the, the day and whatever. I think that um, it's more kind of like a crisis moment of kind of like, mm-hmm. oh, God, I've just realized that I'm – in this place that's unfamiliar, I've got nothing that I love and I'm expected to try and figure this stuff out on my own yeah. rather than a um, permanent kind of, you know, breakdown or loss of yeah, a more, kind of, more of a pathological kind yeah. of story, yeah. yeah.
4: Although I think feeding into that, it was, it was interesting to me watching at this time that when that core memory is formed from that experience, joy mm. throws it away. Mm. and although obviously it's recovered by the end and so it doesn't get into the the loop of what could be then called PTSD mm. yeah. that that process dumped, of something terrible has happened that i can't connect to anything else so that's going to go in this locked off place over here Mm. where i i don't have to deal with it that's effectively what the brain's doing when you experience trauma that's so bad that you kind of you don't really remember it you close it away Mm. and although it's it's obviously not as extreme as that that was kind of what it made me think of that process of Mm. this memory's occurred but i don't want it although interestingly her
0: dream is about that yeah Like, her her brain is trying to replay that scenario in some kind of, like, uh, a way that examines its uh, genuine threat to her. Yeah,
4: which it's... it's been theorized that this is what the process of dreaming is that all those residual bits of, of stuff that are in your brain from the day or that that are going on in your life that you haven't properly processed your brain is effectively defragging it's trying to connect these disparate pieces of information together so that it can make sense of them once it's made sense of them it can file them and doesn't have to think about them anymore
2: mm. yeah yeah exactly right it's, it's very interesting doing therapy and I asking patients about their dreams. I don't go into dream analysis like Freud or anything, but Mm. if you pick apart, like, what was the feeling in that dream Mm. and and what do you think, that does that feeling relate to anything? Um, You know, that, you know, it's sort of, it's another state of consciousness and it's another, you know, and so for Riley who can't access kind of how she's feeling, uh, then, you know, that would actually, you could ask her about that and then that would... You know, you would give you an an avenue in if that kind of makes sense. Mm.
0: And at dinner, we see that mom is governed by sadness and dad by anger. This doesn't feel accidental. Um, so so what can all of you guys say about how Pixar are conveying the difference between being a tween and being an adult parent? Bearing in mind, Riley's pretty unusual. If you look into her school friends' uh, heads, the, the girl with the blue streak in her hair is governed by, is it fear again?
4: <laughs> Like, mm. I'm not sure if it's fear or disgust.
0: I think it's fear. The yeah. one in the middle, the one going,
4: "I'm a fraud. Everyone can see oh, yeah. it." <laughs> yeah, no, she definitely mm. is. Yeah, sorry, I'm thinking of the the girl mm. in the pizza place.
0: But there's a difference between how the children's brains react and how the adults' brains react yeah. uh, in terms I- of like the the, the line up at the desks. Um, go.
2: Yeah, we paused that, and and the thing that I picked up on was not so much the placement of the the lead emotions, but it was actually that the emotions were all sitting down in mm-hmm. the adults. That the emotions seemed to be the emotional system seemed to be organised. Whereas yeah. what, what's going on with Riley, it's 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 a jumble. You
1: know, things are kind with of the boy that meets her, and it's just everyone running girl, around with silence. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: that doesn't change. Does I know. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but yeah it is that difference between a sort of organized system and a chaotic kind of system that sort of that often would define more optimum kind of functioning
2: yeah and it's sort of it's sort of interesting you know that mum mum is mum is sort of sad or as i would have Uh, Maybe I I would have pegged her as more of an anxious type, but Mm -hmm. um, and you know I think I feel that dad being angry is sort of a a bit stereotypical. You don't see him really get angry aside from that one time, Mm -hmm. uh, but. Yeah, I'm it does not, fall
0: yeah. into stereotypes at this point. It's like, what, do we leave the toilet seat up? What? It's like, that's what men do. They
2: leave <laughs> the toilet a, seat we've up. have got a mustache. That's you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it, it. It does become a bit basic and a bit dated when uh, when it comes to uh, the gender roles, uh, specifically of the parents. There was a bit that annoyed you about this. Well,
4: it, uh, it wasn't so much that there was a specific bit, but it just, it it's a little bit frustrating in this scene that this is the first introduction that we get to the parents emotions and it seems oversimplified and yes there is a little bit of gender stereotyping in it for the purposes
0: of simplicity and conveying uh Mm. standards and tropes in a comedic fashion yeah
4: but but what annoyed me about it was the fact that that then doesn't seem to be consistent with how her parents behave later on. Um, mm. The, um, I mean, I don't want to say too much about her mum being led by sadness at this point because we haven't explored that emotion yet and it links into what we're going to talk about later on. Um, and it, it does make sense for her. I, I do get what you mean about she seems more of an anxious type, but I think there is a core element to her personality that sadness does make sense for for being the lead emotion on. But in her dad, the uh, the anger that he expresses at the table and and uh, sending her up to bed, you then don't see that in his interactions with her further down the line. Mm. So mm. it it doesn't seem like anger really is his his lead emotion he's not governed by that he's not impulsively uh, sort mm. of attacking out I mean it might be that the idea is well he's out at work all day and so he needs that activating emotion and again if that's the case then it's it's falling into that stereotype but he seems much more connected and understanding further down the line than having a ruling mm. anger would suggest
2: yeah, I mean, he could, he could have just it could have just been one other bit where he tries to play with um, Riley and then she rejects him and then he could have gotten angry then and mm. then it would have, I think mm. it would have fit a bit or better. Or even
1: just with the process of moving with things being late and whatever, he, yeah. you know, at one point he looks frustrated but it's not that explosion of anger that you might expect if that was a lead mm. emotion.
4: Yeah, although Riley, mm. when, just to, to skip to the end briefly, when Riley comes back and one of the first things she said to them is, please don't be mad... Mm. That does kind of hint that an angry response is something that on some level she was expecting
1: mm. yeah. yeah, yeah, it does exactly and and
2: and also perhaps you know the mother she is played for laughs where she has the daydream you know mum you know about the, the Brazilian, but yeah, my, yeah. My <laughs> catch, yeah. Um, but you know what what so she's sad, and then what happens is anger. Like activates the daydream to mm. to you know. It's like she's I'm 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 retaliating against my husband, and you know, but I'm doing it in this private way. Yeah, there's a whole she...
4: other story going on there
2: because <laughs> she, she doesn't want to. Uh... Although that, that pilot seems to get around because a few people are, yeah. are thinking about it. So she... Well, the
0: the teacher is, and I was like, that guy needs to be aged up by eleven years. Otherwise, it seems like the mum has turned him down really recently. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, the uh, just a couple of things that I noticed when we were uh, going around in, in the film that I, I noted down. I think you said this in our discussion on YouTube about the uh, the, the visuals of um, Inside Out, but that the giant shelves with all of those memories long-term memories mm-hmm. that the library the archive is if you when they zoom up and, and look down on it it is the brain canals it is shaped like a, yeah. a yeah. brain it, with it looks those like
3: the folds ridges. and
4: ridges yeah. of the the human brain yeah and and the other uh, sort of design element that i thought was really neat although obviously this is not what it looks like inside your head was the fact that the uh, the the patterns of the stairs in headquarters mm. look like dna
1: Mm, yes. Yeah.
2: Yeah, 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 pick that up. And on then the, there's also
1: that in the um, forgotten area, mm-hmm. all of the kind of rope-type vertical things, I think, are supposed to emulate the dendrites on the end of neurons. I think oh. so, In your brain because nice. they sort of branch out.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. nice one. Uh, the, the the other visual thing I, I quite liked, I don't know if it's intentional or not, but the, the islands and, and just the and then the, the the shells behind it had a real inception vibe for mm-hmm. me. Like and sort of like you know and sort of connects with that kind of yeah. that last bit mm. of the inception, you know, with the, the music and the crumbling oh. and the yeah. arc. Yeah, yeah. that's
3: it, that kind <laughs> of
2: thing. And then yeah, I was just like, Oh, that's inception. Yeah. That? And it, I don't know, maybe I was reading too much into it, but like later on she wakes up and she's in a different mood. I'm like is that, is that another nod to
0: itself? Because technically, Joy is trying to incept Riley to some degree. She's trying to mm. manipulate uh, the way she thinks. She almost uh, at times wants to get rid of sadness. There's a, yeah. um, a point. Which they had to be really careful with how they played this scene because too much and they would tip their hand as to how this film was going to end and it wouldn't feel like a surprise. But it's when they meet Bing Bong, Sanderson, Joy, Mm -hmm. and he's down and Joy pulls faces and acts like a goofball at him and it doesn't do anything anything it shows that joy mm. is not going to be able to fix everything
3: mm. i love mm. that
0: because then immediately yeah. sadness sits down with him and commiserates and it's a model for how the film is going to end but it's yeah. just enough because you've got just enough joy going come on we got to go for for people not to be able to
2: focus too much on and she's that would being yeah, she's,
0: having this demonstrated
2: yeah she's baffled by it she's just mm. so confused by it yeah and i was Watching this with my kids and and my, my son was like, oh, you know, that's good, you know, uh, have, you know, sadness is gone, so they don't have to feel sad anymore. It's like, well, actually, but also means you can't feel happy anymore. Like mm. it was sort of with sort of this message through mm. through what was going on.
3: Mm.
0: And when they were on the train, uh, and we're, uh, we're around about. The middle end of um, uh, we're at the end of Act Two because uh, the 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 down point the low point in all Pixar films comes at the beginning of Act Three before they gear up for the end. Uh, but Joy on the train is like we can get back to Riley and uh, you know we'll we'll get the old Riley back. Joy wants to go backwards. She wants to mm. uh, reclaim this child and get Riley to stop moving forward through this scary. Uh, unsettling place and to just re- rewind which mm. is unhealthy and it's, it's neatly positioned to make uh, Joy be wrong for a lot of the movie which mm. I really like mm. A couple of other things I noticed at this point on the train, the facts and opinions thing um, <laughs> g- no, they look so similar that that's like a little wink and a nod like that I mean that I think uh, is, is imp- yeah that. uh, that's uh, a pointed gag, and uh, I don't think that will ever age, sadly <laughs> um, it's played it 's played very quickly, I
2: think which is mm. a yeah.
0: nice light. It's, it's dry in the way it's delivered. Uh, the red and yellow hockey jersey, I was watching when Riley was playing the first time around and, and everything goes wrong. And she uh, storms out at the end when you've got a couple of combination uh, emotions. And we'll talk about, obviously, the big one later. But um, there's red and yellow, which is joy and anger. And it expresses mm. Riley's feelings when she's playing hockey. Mm. So obviously her jersey matches. It is a fierce angry joy mm. which i really like mm. as well yeah
4: yeah well it's like it's right. like kind of determination pride and yeah. those sort of emotions that glow and maybe burn a little bit but mm. in a good way in a way that moves you forward happily Yeah.
0: if you're going to play hockey you kind of need some anger
4: a little bit yeah, <laughs> yeah
2: so, you know basically is she, is she a gryffindor is that what they're sort of saying <laughs> yeah, she's
4: <laughs> Which might explain why she's she feels so out of sorts being expected to wear turquoise.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, Sharon, you loved the abstraction being symbolized. I as did.
4: Well. The the one of the things that I love about this is, is the way they talk and it's obviously just sort of a, a fun visual bit. They don't really go into the the, the deep what meaning it means, of it yeah. or anything. But going into the the abstraction machine and as Bing Bong kind of narrates, or no, Sadness narrates what's going on because she's been reading the the textbooks for this, Mm. that the the purpose of this is to put things in that at the moment don't make sense so you can break them down into their component parts Mm. so that eventually they will... I mean, they might still not make sense by the time you get to the end of it, but at least you've broken it down into simple enough components that you have a better chance of being able to see them properly mm. and effectively, mm. this is how this is my way of dealing with a lot of the things that I struggle with in life, particularly overwhelming emotions and my therapists in the past have said I do have a bit of a tendency to over intellectualize things, but that's how I work that's how i um if, if something is too uh abstract and raw and 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 i don't necessarily mean mean this in a bad way but meaningless if i can't attach meaning to it in some way then i struggle to understand it and if mm. i don't understand it it causes me distress
1: mm. so
4: having that as something that is central to riley's functionality i really related to i i Kind of get the impression that Riley's not the kind of person who necessarily uses that a lot, and that might be why they had to burn out the gunk <laughs> mm. <laughs> because it, it gets it gets left quite a lot. But um, but yeah, she'll use it more liked, as she gets older. Exactly, yeah,
2: mm. Yeah. Mm. yeah. I was. Um when we were preparing for the pod and we looked up some theories uh, around emotion and Amy and I were talking about sort of and Amy pulled out like a, a wheel of emotions that she can she uses with clients and I was talking about I remember when I first started working and uh, I had a patient and she just couldn't label emotions and I remember sort of printing out a list of emotions and she would she would like literally look at look at a list and say oh, this is oh this is the one or oh, maybe it's this one or it's this one and I was sort of just I remember being blown away that 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 was actually something that was needed to happen and for some people you know there's there's this analytical frame that they have or that you know the emotions are too confusing and too complicated and you know you do have to kind of explain them to them and then they and then you also then have to get them to feel it mm-hmm. uh, and kind of and then allow you know and do that in a safe way so it's not overwhelming so they don't shut down which is what happens to riley she shuts down so yeah
1: there's some um lovely stuff written by dan siegel that kind of talks about that you know our optimum neurological functioning essentially is that we need to have differentiated parts so everything can't all just be lumped in together and confusing and then we need functioning integration between those parts they need to be linked but they need to be separate and i feel like this this movie does that so well in like in both that scene, the abstraction scene, and then in how the various emotions work together. It's kind of this, we're different, but we can join together to help Riley's functioning.
0: Yeah. I, love, I love how they've painted such a simple picture that children and parents can understand with this one. I feel like, well, it's definitely helped me, so I hope it's helped other people to just be able to kind of, See things a little more clearly uh, as to, to what might be troubling them mm-hmm. in their head. It's it's a little therapy yeah. session for the cinema audience, so to just to sort of show them: here's some things that people go through. You yeah. might have mm-hmm. gone through yeah. the same
2: yourself. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. One of the, what, one of the first things that you do as a therapist is what we call psychoeducation. It's just putting a label to stuff, yeah. Yeah. and often you don't really have to do very much. You just have to listen and then repeat back to mm. you someone, and I've had it done to me, and I've known that that's what that therapist was doing, but it was still was like, ah, yeah, right, mm. okay, and not much more was needed in yeah. certain instances. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And this movie I've used therapeutically. I've written it down for parents and kids to watch together, oh, particularly for, like, there are some families where the parents don't realise that kids experience a range of emotions, that they think that everything's about behaviour, that it's not until you're a teenager or, um, you know, an adult that you actually feel these different things. It's all about whether you're behaving well or not. Um, And so it's been quite mind-blowing for some parents to go, hang on a minute, like they might have all of these different parts in their head. It's quite interesting. And the kids will then come in and say, you know, um my angry sally today is is really raging or whatever it might be and they kind of draw on that metaphor which is great
0: yeah i um. also like how they uh, they make all of the uh, emotions appealing they there was a lot of disgu- mm-hmm. uh, there was a lot of debate when they were in the design stage for disgust should we make her disgust ing or disgust ed and the they ended up going for the latter and it's absolutely the right idea because she's this adorable little character who even though she's like a valley girl is is animated so beautifully and, and voiced so amusingly that you kind of want to squish her uh, which <laughs> Which Allow- she would
4: hate, by the Which way. Which she would
0: hate, yeah. She'd be like, oh, get off me. Um, but that allows kids to embrace that as a positive, that disgust is a positive thing about themselves. If they made disgust, disgust, ing, it would almost feel like, well, you want to get rid of this thing because it's not helping at all. Mm. No, no, no. She's really useful. And she's yeah. my favourite character design. And anger as well. Anger is one of the things that frightens children the most. And they turned him into this little red hulk who, uh, you know, it's kind of... Cute, but that also because he powers Riley repeatedly. The thing about uh, he's expressed it in one line uh, he's very big on things being fair. Kids can go, Yeah, you know what? I have some of that too, and maybe this is positive too. And I think mm-hmm. maybe the only one that they uh, they kind of over egg the pudding on so that kids would be like, I wish mine wasn't so overactive is fear because uh, it's it's kind of the same joke over and over again and then when they can't do that joke they kind of beat him upside the head and smack him in the testicles which is, is yeah. funny and Bill Hader's uh, hilarious with it but it's very difficult to imagine a fear in this movie being more subtle than that because they have mm. to paint him with broad purple brush strokes. I,
4: I think possibly part of the reason for that is that if you if you made a kid's movie with a situation where fear was really useful, mm. that would be too scary yeah. for your audience. True.
0: So he has to be overactive and jittery so that we can kind of laugh at our own fears. Yeah. 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 Okay.
2: And, and i think joy joy encompasses a lot of fear she's anxious about mm. like what's happening she's mm. anxious about sadness causing more damage you know i think that they try and incorporate uh anxiety into fear uh, into joy mm. a bit more um because i yeah because i think yeah if you have this overactive anxious It would be – it's difficult for people. But also, like, I think – It's in
1: disgust as well.
2: And also, yeah. And I think – but I think people don't realise they're anxious frequently. So, Mm. you know, I think that they they don't realise that they're afraid about lots of stuff. Mm. And it's just sort of a natural state of being for Mm. them. Yeah,
4: anxiety is often something that you you only recognise when it stops. Mm. Yeah.
0: <laughs> when Honest Trailers covered this one They asked the question at the end Wait a minute, so Joy feels sad Does this mean she has little people inside her head as well? No, you're taking it too literally guys. <laughs> there is a very deliberate Relationship between Joy and sadness Because Joy has blue hair It suggests visually speaking that these are not just one thing, that there are elements, a little bit of crossover. And as you mentioned, Disgust has a bit of fear. Her neck yeah. scarf is a little purplish. Yeah,
3: and her yeah, shoes are so purple is, And well.
0: her shoes are purpley pink as
2: well. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I think it was a theorist Plutchik. Pl- yeah, Plutchik, yeah. Plutchik, yeah. He talks about eight core emotions, and this is joy and sadness together, anger and fear, trust and distrust, surprise and anticipation. You know, so it's two you know, they different they're sides of the same coin, yeah. essentially. But
0: they yeah. had to boil that down to as few characters as possible for the, the, the story. Just like five is exactly the right number for you to be able to keep track of everything. If they'd had surprise running around as well mm-hmm. or anticipation, like mm. they they aren't going to be able to... Play enough of a role in the story to really keep everything bolted down. Absolutely,
3: so and made, I, think you, I think they made you, the right choice. You're, even you're if oversimplifying
4: they did it from the perspective of this is a child, and their emotions will be relatively primary colours at this stage. Yeah, yes, it's, it's yeah. entirely possible that if we follow this through to um, to, to Riley being older, I, it, it's not going to happen because again, it would overcomplicate the story. Mm. But you could have further emotional. Uh, anthropomorphizations yeah. turning up in her head yeah. and the you, you talk about uh Pluczik's emotion wheel he in addition to those eight core ones has all the blended emotions as well mm. and then if you look at that he's got a big grid where it's uh in addition to the core emotions you then have an extreme and a muted version mm. of each of those emotions so like anger you also have rage and irritation mm. so mm. And, and that's you know Kind of represented by that really complicated console that Riley gets in her yeah. head at the end. <laughs>
0: there is a really nice um, chart of what happens when you combine two, each of these two emotions for uh, Inside Out. I'll mm-hmm. see if I can find it and link to it uh, in the show notes. But uh, it, it expresses that how you get um, like disgust and fear together, a revulsion. Is that right? Uh,
1: mm-hmm. One second. Hang on we'll a second. Yeah, oh, that would be right.
0: Yeah. Uh, you don't need to yeah. say all of them. I know, but, but yeah. if if they, if they had all of these, then that's like twenty-five. So this <laughs> is the that would be the Infinity War of um,
3: <laughs> Inside Out. Mm, absolutely. <laughs>
0: I could possibly get a little bit of free therapy here. I don't know. We'll, we'll see how it goes. But um,
4: Like I'm, you don't get it every day.
0: Yeah, that's the, one of the major <laughs> benefits of, of being with Sharon. Um, but uh, the I'm very glad I saw Inside Out in 2015, because 2016 was a really difficult year. Uh, it seems like a long time ago. There was a perfect storm of transatlantic political unrest. Uh, first in the summertime, the British people, by a small margin, voted yes to Brexit, something which three years later at the time of recording we still haven't managed, though we have lost billions of pounds. And in the autumn, the American people, by a small margin, according to electoral college numbers rather than real ones, voted yes to Donald Trump being the leader of the free world, something which also hasn't happened. But the whole globe has suffered as a result nonetheless. And why I'm mentioning this here is because what Riley goes through kind of happened for me, too, but in a different way, for quite a worrying amount of time and intensity, though with a different mix of emotions. For me, it was a sudden monumental overload of disgust for the majority voters who seemed to me to be pushing us in entirely the wrong direction as a society. But I also felt something that the Germans call uh, Weltschmerz, uh, which means world-sad, This was a term originally coined by the German author John Paul to denote the kind of feeling experienced by someone who believes that physical reality can never satisfy the demands of the mind, but it was updated by Frederick C. Beiser into a more broad term as a mood of weariness or sadness about life arising from the acute awareness of evil and suffering. He also notes that by the 1860s the word was used ironically in Germany to refer to oversensitivity to these same concerns, So that's the 1860 German version of calling people snowflakes. Good to know this shit's been around for centuries. To be exact, it was lament, a passionate expression of grief. Uh, Because in 2016, we were saying goodbye to eight years of moving in the right direction with the Obama administration. And people wondering why, as a Brit, I care that much about what America does... Aside from the fact that for six years I have immersed myself in American history in order to write my series of sci-fi novels, there has never been a leader in Britain in my lifetime that I could proudly get behind. I think Tony Blair in the late 90s was the closest we got, and I never quite trusted him. But I am continuously disgusted with my country's determination to keep electing not only a heartless conservative government, but an incompetent one to boot. I emotionally invest in America, and I always have, because you guys, not you guys, you're Australian, because America, listeners, you set the tone for the world. What you do and how you collectively behave matters. And the dichotomy of Democrats and Republicans, right and left, far more in recent years, represents a symbolic battle between the better angels of our human nature and our selfish demons holding us back. Effectively, you are a representational story of mankind as it stands right now, upon the brink. I would be frankly crazy not to care. But since 2016, it's been an ongoing nightmare over here and over there. And I've been worried about American friends of mine who are, for example, worried about their health care and, you know, worried about gun violence and, and, and the sudden emergence of actual Nazis. It's it's been very stressful and every glance at twitter or the front page of a newspaper would jab at my disgust buttons all the harder not so much fear but disgust with the the worst dregs of humanity and it made it hard to write it made it hard to record it made it hard to edit And even think, if you remember, I had a severe arm problem back then, Mm. so I couldn't even use my mouse at that point. I I had um, calcific Calcific tendonitis, which basically mm. made me very immobile, and that's the only thing I really do. All I wanted to do was to travel to a better timeline where the opposing decisions got made. And since that couldn't happen at all, all I wanted to do was just lie down and die rather than spend another second aware Of a world where the ugliest racism was being not dealt with but outright encouraged. Very fine Mm. people on both sides. And I'll be honest, in three years, that hasn't really gone away. I think Mm. that that viscous green sludge will only be hosed off when we have an inspiring president again in America and when we're moving forward and when Britain has decided either through common sense or through bloody-mindedly pushing through with its catastrophic exit plan until everybody suffers enough that it is done with the whole myopic, xenophobic, self-entitled enterprise, then my disgust can take a back seat. (laughs) So uh, where I'm leading to on this, my question to the group is this. It feels like I'm probably not going to be alone in my disgust and sadness overload. Is there a term for this to help me and some of our listeners better understand their brains? And more to the point, what are the best courses of action? Oh, gosh. <laughs> Not to put you on the spot
2: too much, but.
1: I think we're very much in a similar situation in Australia as well. Our, yeah. you know, political, most conservative political party has again been.
2: Elected, yeah, and and elected in a very um it was unexpected. Yeah, uh, according to there's a lot of well, shock. Yeah, a lot of shock. And and I sort of look, I completely echo your feelings mm. around the the recent political history in across the world. It's mm. been, I mean, I think so this is, your question was how, how to go about it, or like how to
0: it, go, it's, go it's, can you put a name to to a disgust and sadness overload. And and if so, is there a a, a way of living with it day to day that that can lessen it?
4: I I don't know if there's a specific name for it. I would say with any kind of emotional overload, the first step is always to recognise it.
3: Mm-hmm. You, yeah. you can't Check.
4: you can't change or tackle or address or even learn to live with something that you don't accept and mm. refuse to acknowledge the existence of. Mm.
2: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think it, the, the lesson of inside out is processing of emotions, right? Mm. And theory is, uh, sorry, and therapy is processing of emotions. Yeah. It's not about someone comes to a therapist and walks out happy. Frequently they don't. Mm. Um, they, you know, it's about helping people move through the emotions that they've got mm. so that they're less troubling for mm. them.
1: And accept their presence.
2: Yeah, that's it. Yeah. You know, so like, and sort of like, so you can arrest. The you can arrest the problem, like mm. you can arrest arrest that that sort of overload if mm. that's what it is. I mean, I know you guys are a big Yoda fan, um, but mm. you know, y- Yoda talks about you know fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. You know that that process is like if you're not aware of that going on, then that's where things can go. Mm. Whereas I think if you're able to like someone is able to label it, mm. and then they can kind of do something about it, kind of go, oh look, I'm in this mode what should I do? Mm-hmm. What should I not do? And sometimes we we choose the wrong thing. That's okay. We're allowed to do that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's about helping people kind of get into the thing of like, I'm in a shitty mood, so should I really stay up late and play a computer game or should I like do the dishes mm-hmm. and clean the house and try and start afresh the next day or, or whatever it is. It's
1: sort of removing the distress about the di- distress yeah. that's going on. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Like, And I think like in uh, to bring it back to my oncology work, like frequently I say to people, look, it's okay to be scared. Yeah, it's okay yeah. to be uh, anxious. You don't have to be positive because a lot of cancer patients believe that they should be positive about their illness, and they, which is just mind-blowingly ridiculous when you think about it. Mm. And and you, you, they come back the next week and they're relieved because they don't have to carry that around and sort of say, yeah, and look, it's normal to be this way. Yeah. And then and then that reduces that overloading feeling. Mm. And then I think you're freer to. Process it. I think.
1: Yeah, you don't have to be happy about the fact that the world is crumbling around us, and yeah. and that the people in power don't share one iota of <laughs> your personal beliefs. Yeah, it's, like it's it's no wonder that every, like I think a lot of people are overwhelmed um, because it feels so big and you feel so powerless.
2: And, and perplexing, just straight up perplexing. Yeah. Like, like, are you serious? Like, why would you not want gun control or, or whatever it might mm. be? So.
0: Oh, just to amend a thing, you you said that we're not the biggest fans of Yoda. We love Yoda (laughs) in Empire, Jedi, and The Last Jedi. Uh, We we, uh, are very disapproving of Yoda in Phantom Menace. Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith because that's where he's not seeing the damage that his philosophy is doing. Mm. And the Jedi's...
1: Complicated relationship.
0: Yeah.
4: (laughs) But But he learns from his mistakes. I was just going to say, it does kind of fit because later on he sort of recognises, ooh, I made a really, really big mistake.
0: Huge mistake have I made. Yeah, so much like Joy, Joy learns. Yeah. And and mm. and becomes less of a colossal asshole to other people.
4: Yeah, I think I'd, I would say from from my perspective and my training in therapeutic approaches is a, a person centred one. So uh, the type of therapy that you were talking about earlier Hunter where you just kind of listen to somebody talk and reflect back Mm -hmm. um, significant elements of that to, to help them get a different perspective on it that's the the sort of therapy that that I do or that I was trained in and I think in terms of of the best courses of action it's difficult to say that there is uh, a specific best course of action because it's going to be different for everybody but i would mm-hmm. say if there's if there's one thing that is always going to be helpful it's Find a way to be able to express yourself in a non-judgmental environment. And that doesn't necessarily mean join a forum where everybody's going to amp your anger and rage and, and, um, you know, reflect your fury back at you. That is potentially actually going to make it worse. But just find an environment, whether that's therapy, whether it's a friend, a parent, a dog, where you can feel what you feel and if necessary, say what you feel, although not be expected to if you really can't, and not be judged for that. Mm. And just be allowed to be without anyone saying, that's great. Now try something else. Here, have some mm. mindfulness. Here, have some whatever. Because there's there's all sorts of different things that people want to point to and say this is the magic thing that will help everybody and it's usually something like exercise or healthy food or, or something that there will always be some people in the world who literally can't do that thing and it certainly isn't going to work the same way for everybody so I think having the space to feel you and hopefully find you your best course of action is is probably the the number one thing I would recommend.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I definitely worked with countless people where, but one patient in particular who tried lots and lots of people and had this awful history of awful things happening to her. And, you know, she she wrote me a letter at the end sort of saying, you know, it was the fact that I'd said to her, um, you know, that I was honest in the fact that I didn't know how, to fix what was going on that i think you know uh, was one of the big pieces of the puzzle of her trusting me and you know and then as soon as you have trust you can do great things in therapy mm-hmm. and and as soon as you and that's and bringing it back to the movie you know riley kind of ends up having a, a trust attachment kind of component and that is a healing kind of aspect of what goes on for her
0: Speaking of Joy uh, being a character on a learning track, uh, I was looking up uh, what the um, memory dump uh, it it was called and and what it actually is is, uh, made of. And this is on the Disney wiki. One of the comments uh, said, I am glad that Joy cried. I hate her. She is so selfish. Riley does not have to be happy. She is my most hated inside-out character. And that was a lot to unpack in one go. I was like, okay. (laughs) Right. Um, First off... This person is very angry. Second off, this person has 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 got a list of most hated Inside Out characters, which Joy is at the top. Why do you have characters you hate in this lovely film? The, the, these are characters that suffer from character flaws, a lot of which get slowly dealt with over the course of the movie. The, um, the point that Joy's crying is around about the time she starts to get her revelation regarding sadness. Uh, she's on a track she's on a path this is very much uh, coming from the side of uh, um, uh, approaching movies that has sprung up more recently as an actual like widespread belief system which is to reduce them to the component parts and to look at everything entirely logically and to be angry that characters apparently make mistakes when they shouldn't Mm. It's important to remember these mistakes, these character flaws, the things that happen are the film.
4: I suppose from a creative standpoint, some characters deserve to die. Ones that lack common sense or even basic survival instinct. Your story's not scary because the characters are making choices the audience wouldn't make. Plus, you need a smarter lead. Here, like this. What was that noise? I assume it's the deranged, hook-handed killer who escaped when the asylum's antiquated security system failed.
3: I guess they shouldn't have cut corners. Although it is understandable given the recent economic downturn. Should we go check it out?
4: No. We should call 911 on my fully charged cell phone lock the doors, and then stand back-to-back in the middle of the room holding
2: knives.
0: By the way, it is a supreme irony that Dan Harmon went on to create Rick and Morty, feverishly worshipped by exactly the same kind of pedantic, joyless movie obsessives being parodied in that exact sketch.
4: Although, as you identify, this person is obviously carrying an awful lot of anger. If they're using terms like hate, that's an anger...
0: Indeed. thing and that makes me sad because this is the one film that could have no, helped but, that person but,
4: okay but look at it from a <laughs> from a therapeutic perspective and what we were just saying about being able to sit and be with emotions that you feel without being judged for that yeah. one of the advantages of having fictional characters and fictional people that you can feel things towards because that's the other thing as well when we engage with fiction our brains on a certain level our rational brain is is well aware of the fact that this isn't real even like young children you know a lot of people obsess about the fact that you shouldn't um that, that kids shouldn't be exposed to certain things because they don't know what's real and what's not they know that you know but the the uh, on a an internal level your brain reacts emotionally to things that are not real as much mm. or almost as much as they do to, to things which are Uh, quote-unquote real so to have a character that you can feel that hate towards and express that hate safely because joy's not real she's not going to be hurt by the fact that you hate her
0: although although there is a symbolic uh, irony in hating the concept of joy
4: but exactly that's that's something that frankly i would want to take this person and say okay so you hate joy. joy let's talk about that <laughs> mm. but that you know that's a kind of a window into what that person maybe needs to explore and, mm. and work through but, um, but yeah that's the, one of the therapeutic elements of film that I love the most mm.
0: So, what's really going on in the memory dump? Because what happens to Riley here, coinc- it's, a, it's, a, it's a stressful situation, but it coincides with something bigger going on with Riley. And what goes on in the uh, memory dump is kind of the exemplifying of that.
2: It, it, she she's down in that dark thing, and she starts looking at the memories. And it's it's not so much that she's remembering; she's reflecting on on the memories, you know. And so she sort of.
1: She's
2: processing. She's processing and she's sort of thinking about things in a new light or a different light and and comes out sort of in this sort of more mature, more complex kind of place. And then you sort of – and then sort of jumping forward, she sort of takes this – you know, she processes all those boyfriends and she saves sadness essentially. So, you know, I, the the way I sort of viewed it is she was reflecting and then that kind of allowed for growth. But
1: Yeah, it's got – It's also got quite a developmental flavour to it in that kind of, um, you know, leaving behind a transitional object from childhood in Bing Bong and moving into, growing up, moving into adolescence. It's got kind of that feel of of moving into a a period of more complexity than what she's had before.
0: Yeah. Uh, When they were going through uh, um, the 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 back way round uh, Riley's mind. Are they, they go into the frontal lobes? Mm. Is that where the the control center mm. is? Okay, when they were um, going through, say, like that French fry canyon and the um, that this giant <laughs> house of cards, uh, the original uh, way that, that Pixar were going to pitch this was that these are artifacts of childhood that are being torn down. And I'm mm. glad they didn't. I mean, it's still there. Like, there's still that sense of it being demolished. There's like that Graham Cracker house that's been floored. Yeah. And yeah. and what's effectively happening here is that Riley's childhood is being kind of forcefully shut down on Yeah, her. she's
4: having to grow mm. up, to, uh, not too quickly is a strong way of putting it, but she is having to grow up quite abruptly because yeah. this transitional thing has happened to her mm. at this point in her life. And, and a transition and any kind of change is is difficult to some degree or another for us to cope with as human beings mm. but for children it can be a kind of it's it's a risky thing because kids can be so fluid and so flexible and they seem like they're contending with things very easily but it can have ramifications further in life if they don't have chance to process it and and this is something yeah. that i i I relate to incredibly hard um, because I had a a military childhood and I moved around a lot and there are many ways in which I love that. And I am because of who I am and how my brain works. I, I love change and I like that experience of having novelty all the time, but there is a loss that comes with every move. And sooner Mm. or later, that loss is going to have to be contended with. And if there's been a lot of moving around and a lot of things that you've had to let go of, then it's going to stack up. And for Riley, it coming when she's 11, so she's been through a lot of her developmental stages already and a lot of her sense of who she is is not necessarily fixed but she's she's gone through all of that she she has quite a strong sense of identity it relates very much to joy and i think this is another reason why you do see joy experience elements of different emotions because she is um, reflective of riley she is the closest of them to riley's identity but in part it's that being identified so strongly with joy that throws Riley out of kilter when she's put in a situation where she literally can't feel joy because of the circumstance Mm. that she's in.
1: Yeah, it's completely destabilising for her that Mm. she could be feeling these other things. Yeah, yeah.
0: And Bing Bong himself, um, it's expertly played so that he's a little bit annoying, but he kind of grows on you. It's Mm. the story of Puff the Magic Dragon. It's... um, the the moving on from childish things ultimately Bing Bong is no mm. longer of any real use to Riley so uh, he, when he sacrifices himself it is a genuine emotional moment of being able to, having to let that go because if, mm. especially if you reckon on the fact that all of these facets of Riley are part of Riley it's, it's, it's going on on a, on a subconscious level the actual rescuing of joy and the rescuing of sadness is what directly leads to a more mature emotion of the blend of sadness and joy. It's... Mm. It's... It, it's a it's a very you know a beautiful symbolic scene and there was um, a couple of test audiences who said to Pete Doctor we really liked it but it's sad at the end could you maybe have Bing Bong come back no <laughs> that's the point <laughs> it, it's um it's it's kind of a, a a necessary sacrifice the only thing they could have done a little bit better and this is just for me would be at the very end after the credits like Marvel Stinger style an adult Riley steps onto the moon in a space suit.
2: I would love that. <laughs> yeah, that would have been good. I mean, it really, really packs a punch. You know, he looks down at his arm and, he, you know, it's, it's sort of disappearing in that back to the future kind of way. And he's like, no, come on, let's go. And you know at that point that that's what's going to happen. And it, it takes that kind of thing of, like, what would normally be in a film this exciting moment like yes they've they've got out of danger and yeah. you know we didn't mm. think that they're going to do that to this kind of she's she's safe but I'm I'm sad like like mm. this kind of you know which is this really what kind of what happens later on as well
4: I think there's a few turning points that happen here in the dump as well and for me the most significant point for joy actually comes when she's she's looking at the the almost forgotten memories of of Riley when she was little, and as you say, she's reflecting on them. She's feeling that sense of the the. The little Riley, mm. who was innocent and and completely able to be joyful without the intrusion of much else because she was unaware, is gone. That Riley is mm-hmm. never coming back.
0: And this is very much reflecting the, the, a truth that Doctor was trying to convey. Yeah. This is a parent looking at photographs of their child,
4: mm, absolutely, mm. or or even an adult looking back at themselves, yeah. and mm. accepting that you know that that version of themselves, although in part it's still there and, and needs nurturing they will never be entirely that way again and that's something that has to be accepted in order to be able to move forward but she gathers up some of those memories and hugs them to her and then she picks up the core memory sorry mm. <laughs> Over. okay give me a sec <laughs> Of Riley in the classroom crying. That Mm. blue memory that is still very bright. And she hugs that too. She is now embracing who Riley is going to be.
2: Mm. yeah, And and who she is. And she's accepting all parts of who she is. Yeah. And that's that's neither good nor bad. It just is. Yeah, Yeah. 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 Mm.
0: Joy's acceptance is mirrored in bing bongs. And I think that's... It's the fact that he's like, I got a good feeling about this one. And he's happy to sacrifice himself, that's what really sells the scene. It's his choice and it... Is seen as a, as a very positive thing from from on yeah his
1: part, him I letting like go rather than him being rejected yeah yeah he's kind he, of got he, that yeah
2: he's not hiding out in 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 the in the memory He's no. yeah. in the
0: memory box so yeah. yeah he goes on a, a a journey himself because at the beginning he's kind of like an out of work um, uh, imaginary friend hoping he won't get caught and erased <laughs> mm. so yeah um, and also special note it needs to go here to Michael Giacchino as maybe the most accomplished composer ever for capturing and conveying quiet, intimate, tear-jerking moments in film. He's done it so many times. Dawn and War for the Planet of the Apes. The new Star Trek films. Lost, The Incredibles, Ratatouille, Up, Spider-Man Homecoming, Coco, Super 8. The part at the end of Super 8 just absolutely slays me. You know, a successor to John Williams, but in, any, in many ways he's superior mm. because, like John Williams, has never really hit me that hard and that mm. repeatedly. With his big bombast and his Superman score, yes, he's definitely hit me that hard. But with the lightness of touch, Michael Giacchino is an absolute master.
2: Mm. Yeah, I think the film has a lot of space in it, like it's sort of it, it allows it, it's sort of it's brightly colored but it does allow the person to like I've watched it a couple of times now and each time I've I've had a different vibe, a different feeling from it and I think there's something about the atmosphere that is created within the film that is just uh, particularly masterful.
3: Yeah.
0: Now most of what is learned by the characters at the end of the film is wordless joy kind of says it in a very short way. But let's elaborate on that and put it into words. What is the value of sadness, both thousands of years ago and what is the value now? And I suppose what is the uh, danger of feeling it too intensely or not at all?
4: For me, just to go back briefly to that line of emotions that I mentioned earlier on, where you've got um, joy and anger pulling you towards things and fear and uh, disgust turning or pulling you away from them. Sadness and surprise although it's omitted uh, from this film for me are the ones that put the brakes on they sit mm. in the middle and what sadness does and to be fair she says this herself crying helps me slow down and obsess over the weight of life's problems it <laughs> it allows you or it, it, that emotion causes you to stop so that you mm. can assess what has happened, what have you lost, what has gone wrong, what has disappointed you. So that you can then reflect on that and work out what you want to do next. And if joy is relentlessly pulling you forwards, you don't have that space, you don't have that that time. Mm. Mm. Um, so for me, that's, that's kind of the key point of, of sadness there.
1: Yeah, it sort of makes you stop and allows time for things to heal and to kind of process, that sort of slows everything down physically and emotionally.
0: It's it's noteworthy, by the way, that this is the emotion that toxic masculinity hates the most. Mm. It will yep. not allow for for room for this, mm. especially and I boys. Think, In girls, it's like I, expected. You can just you know you go off and do the girl thing and be sad, but boys are not allowed to be sad.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting because it's kind of the other side of that. That cultural thing about what emotions girls should express, like that kind of, um, you know, you can feel sad for a bit, but you need to sort of cheer up and and put on a happy face and sort of be out there in the world. It's quite a, I think there are quite a few cultural variations in um, both like a family level, but then also societally about how sadness is expressed and whether actually you get comfort in response to that or not? Like some people would say that it's incredibly isolating, and others would say, "Well, that's when people come and comfort me."
2: Yeah, I mean, and you see that with Riley. She she shows that she's upset, and then and then there's a, a drawing together. Mm. Uh, of but
1: she doesn't seem to expect that. She seems a bit surprised.
2: Yeah, confused. She, well, I mean, you see a couple of days where people have been, you know, yeah, ab- abs- absent mm. to rejecting and. Yeah and a few things like that but you know i think that that's the trigger you know that's one of the benefits of sadness is you get in touch with your values um mm. it does signal to people to come in what what's the movie about the guy who has the doll uh and he's got essentially Girl. lars and
1: okay. the
2: real girl what happens at the end you know they they kind of they all sit with him mm. and you know there's this kind of warmth and growth that kind of goes together and and you know, so that's that. I mean, the difficulty is that you need, you need to have that as the optimal level, not where it flips hmm. into depression.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it can be so sort of self perpetuating and spiraling that it's um it sort of feeds feeds into itself. the The stillness that you get with sadness then can mean that you become immobile and that you kind of slip into that black hole.
0: Yeah, it makes yeah. a lot of people uncomfortable. Obviously, uh, expressing anger makes a lot of people uncomfortable as well, and I think so. fear and joy annoy people. Uh, disgust, if, if you're expressing it a lot of the time, there's, there's less of a reaction to it. But anger makes people feel uncomfortable and they want to get away from you. Sadness a lot of people feel is unwarranted. Mm. They, uh, mm. if, if they are lacking in empathy, they look at you wallowing in it and think that you're being self-indulgent.
4: Yeah. Mm. The, a big yeah. question with that is, well, if and, and this is something that, that I've found gets asked of people a lot who suffer from depression. Well, why are you sad? What have you got to be sad about? Mm. And mm. That, that is completely irrelevant. It's not about it being triggered by anything specific. It is a feeling. Um, or or in some cases an absence of feeling and that is the part that I think you need to focus on first rather than trying to pass out what might have got you into that situation
0: what were the name of those Mm. two uh, psychologist consultants?
4: Uh, Ekman and Dackler
0: I think they were annoyed that Sadness was portrayed as frumpy and a downer at the beginning mm. of the film, especially mm. uh, because uh, it, it suggested. Well, initially, that, she
4: was an outright villain, wasn't she?
0: Yeah. It suggested that Sadness was uh, a, a hindrance. Uh, mm. where, but I. I think you can just about forgive it if you look at the fact that Riley's sadness is not well practised yet mm. and Joy doesn't know who she is. So you're very much getting Joy's perspective on sadness rather than sadness's perspective on yeah, herself. Yeah, and
4: I think it, it does also come down to that sort of... Um, the the stereotypical takes on those emotions and how you see them expressed in people. And again, the, the some of the qualities that sadness has are things that people would stereotypically associate with being in a depressive state similar to how mm. anger is you know has fire coming out of the top of his head and happens to wear a, a, a shirt and tie you know <laughs> that's not coincidence um but he's a businessman um,
0: doing a business
4: exactly um but uh, but yeah the i think the the some of the qualities that she has it gets turned round in the sense that it's stereotypically associated with with a a low state, but then it's also stereotypically associated with the positive qualities that come out of that, which is the empathy, the cuddly person Mm. that you can then sit down and snuggle up to because you need to to feel better.
0: Yeah. And the film concludes with the birth of my very favourite emotion. Uh, They don't say it out loud, but it's melancholy. Uh, Hmm. What is this? And why is it great?
2: <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of great art in the world. I think that's been created. And it by feels them. good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I don't think I've ever thought about it in a words way.
1: Yeah, it's more feeling than mm. than words. I mean, it's got that mixture of um, you know sadness and, and joy together. It's kind of got a you know i kind of clump it in a similar region as um nostalgia it's kind of got that mm. mixture of different things things together yeah. and it's not as it doesn't feel as um i don't know flat as sadness
2: it feels like it's a whole it's like it's like someone someone's melancholy there's a wholeness around mm. it you know there's a there's a complexity of richness there mm. rather than a, i'm flat i'm sad i'm unhappy whatever like yeah. it's you know there's 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 that that good and that bad that sort of that yin and the yang that kind of that that sort of that core memory that kind of comes out
4: mm. Mm. i would actually parallel it with the moment in Ratatouille when Remy is explaining how this flavor is this thing Mm. and this flavor Mm -hmm. is this thing but when you put them together they enhance each other so so the the sadness makes the joy feel more exquisite and the joy tempers Mm -hmm. the sadness and makes it so that you can appreciate the stillness of it without having the negative connotations to it.
2: You know, if you've lost something in your life, if you've lost someone, if you've lost, if you've gone through hard times and then you experience something uh, really beautiful, like, you know, a child being born or something or the vice versa, like you've ins- experienced, you know, exquisite joy and then you go through something sad, then you find that, you know, that, that, emotion is just so rich. It's it's such a you know, and you kind of like, you know what, like, hey, I might be crying about this right now, but I'm you know, I'm good with that because it's I I feel alive as a person. It's not, you know, that, you know, I'm just angry and I just want my, you know, superheroes to be doing this thing and blah 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 and, you know, that kind of stuff. You know, it's 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 not just exhilaration. It's it's this really warm human kind of thing that mm-hmm some of the greatest pieces of art have been are about over
3: time.
0: it's almost always uh, tied with loss as well the, the the things you're melancholy over are things you can't have again usually mm-hmm. it's something that's now gone there's a relationship with grief here and in many ways this is the healthy end point of grief that we should actually be trying to reach and i feel like it also dallies just on the cusp of acceptance like if you're Experiencing melancholy, you allow yourself to not accept that thing just for a little while, just Mm -hmm. to like reflect on it before you conclude with acceptance that this thing Mm. and it's it's a
4: flow as well it's an emotion that's moving and i I think the fact that the the core memories the marbles at the end that have the combined emotions you can see them swirling in a way that the the core Mm. memories that Mm. are just one emotion seem a little bit more fixed and for me i think the the fact that again because of how my brain works i have always felt emotions very intensely but socially i was conditioned from a fairly young age that that was not good that that was potentially harmful and might hurt me and other people so i kind of squashed them down and tried to make things a little bit more gray and flat so anything Mm. that i experience that allows me to to feel that and to to see those colors again Mm. is something that i embrace quite wholeheartedly, even if they are emotions that are slightly negatively tinged. So that that whole thing about, well, why would you want to watch a movie that makes you cry quite so much? (laughs) Um, Because it makes me cry, because it makes (laughs) me feel. It doesn't matter that it's a sad feeling, it's a feeling. Mm.
0: There is also a wisdom associated with weighing things up. Mm. Effectively, that's what you're doing. You're, You're going, okay, I'm sad about it this much, but I'm happy about it this much. And that is a perspective which again leads to that acceptance, which is something, acceptance is something that's kind of thin on the ground, Mm. like and always Mm. has been. Uh, But more so now when everything's in flux, when everything's up in the air, and and there's a lot of fear, and it's a lot of anger just flying around the place acceptance, combined with wisdom, as opposed to just acceptance of being told to accept, Mm. to be able to internally accept it, is a feeling that Is of incredible value to be able to live with a part of your life and just think, yeah, I'm okay with this, even if it does still instill me with these powerful feelings.
2: Yeah, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, you can't have acceptance without meaning. You know, I think, you know, you need to have a process of. Uh, incorporating something into your life that's difficult, that happens, mm. and that's when you can have acceptance. But if you're pushing acceptance uh, without that other bit of it, it's, yeah. it's harmful mm. for people. And I have a bugbear about mindfulness as a therapeutic strategy. I won't bore your listeners with it. But <laughs> people get pushed to accept, accept, accept. But really, if until you can kind of incorporate that, oh, this bad thing's happening to me and what does this mean for my life or, you know, uh, what what is important to me, then you can't, you can't move on.
1: It's an interesting one as well because I feel like societally we're kind of torn between um, that sort of new drive to accept things but then also when bad things happen or something happens, everyone's response is always, what are you going to do now? Like it's always like on movement, on moving away from, you need to move on, you need to... There's sort of this drive for action yeah. that counterbalances this sort of newer movement of just sitting with. Yeah. And it's kind of like we haven't gotten to the point of being okay with a mixture of those that mm. you can accept things, integrate it, move on. Yeah. It's, yeah.
0: And a, a really great example of externally forced acceptance Brexit. Uh, when mm. when uh people who voted remain are told your Ramonas accept that we voted for brexit, just accept it and move on uh it, we're being told that by people who then can 't actually muster a brexit mm. and <laughs> <laughs> under these circumstances it's like well we we can 't really accept it uh it, the The numbers were so small, and you never had a plan. Mm. This is a a bunch of people telling us, motivated by two major emotions, neither of which are joy or sadness. They're fear <laughs> and anger.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I've that's got it. the I mean, I, uh, I, Disney Infinity uh, figures of the uh,
3: <laughs> uh, it's emotions right here. chess with your here.
2: emotions. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, you know, joy and sadness are hanging outside that window, outside of the of headquarters. And and what happens? Disgust triggers the anger yeah. that mm-hmm. triggers an angry outburst, which the outcome of which is that joy and sadness can be felt again you know and mm. so it's like like this sort of this <gasps> thing i was saying you, know, you have oh, to process yeah. it through right yeah. and and if you don't do that right people get locked in this angry mode which we see unfortunately around the world quite mm. a lot at the moment
0: This has been one of the best shows we've ever done. Thank you guys so, so much. Um, Okay, so this could take us to a whole nother podcast.
3: um,
0: What are your favourite examples of other emotions or combinations of emotions not seen within this film that are as potent as, say, melancholy?
4: Two emotions that I... I don't know that I would describe them as my favourites. But, but that they are, are particularly particularly significant, okay. and worth examining and and putting through that abstraction machine, um, are guilt and shame, mm-hmm. because mm. a lot of the time they they are very similar, and if you if you don't look at them carefully, they can seem the same. Mm. But guilt, for me, is not entirely a negative thing because it's it's a reaction to something that you've done mm. that that may have hurt people or may have you know taken you to a place that you didn't want to be and it's i think it's important to be able to reflect on and accept that and and therefore use it as a learning experience in order to not do that thing or do that thing differently next time if if you mm. can but shame is a socially enforced emotion to, to me anyway other people may seem this see this differently but it's a socially enforced emotion that is the result of something that you are not something that you've done or it's mm-hmm. it's other people trying to make you feel guilty for something that you can't change and so although it's It's been said that it does have a function in a wider social context in the sense that you can use it to oblige, say, for example, a corporation to clean up their behaviour because they, they won't respond to anything else, but they might respond to being shamed into having their bad actions pointed out to them. When it's put onto an individual, you're asking them to feel bad about something that they literally can't do anything about and 99.9% 99.9% of the time shouldn't have to.
1: Mm. Yeah, shame was going to be one of mine as well. I think working with with kids, the two things that come up most which aren't um, included in this movie probably would be shame and sort of a version of jealousy Yeah. perhaps. Um, you know, I work with a lot of kids who have been through trauma and the amount of shame... Uh, there is is massive and often it completely and utterly shuts their system down um, and it happens again and again and it's sort of it's one of those things that comes up all the time even for little things like forgetting something at school where a teacher might just say hey you need to remember that tomorrow the kids hear you're a hopeless person and that shame kind of floods in and shuts everything down so it's it's a pretty powerful one. Um, the other one is kind of jealousy of sort of why can't my life be like other people's life
3: yeah
1: yeah and I think yeah that one comes up a lot and it comes up you know between siblings and between sort of kids then looking at other people who are around them it's sort of there's lots of that sort of sense of unfairness in the world and why perhaps their life might be worse or they might perceive their life to be worse than the people around them. Mm,
2: mm. Yeah. I think the, the emotion that came up for me is like, uh, I'm not sure how you'd describe it, but sort of like an anxious focus. Uh, hmm. You know, I see it amongst uh, cancer patients, um, sorry to bang on about my work all the time. But That's they, okay. Oh, no, That's they, they, why you're here. Where they, yeah. <laughs> they, where people are in, um, in some cases very, very difficult critical time critical circumstances where they have to make decisions very quickly they have to really put put a lot of doubt about a whole lot of things aside and have to act and have to really kind of be focused and do that and you know part of the anxiety system allows you to do that because you're you know you just triage and you're you're just triaging all the time and you're focusing on what's really important and you know, that's, it's, it's really inspiring to be part of. I mean, a, gu- a good, movie focus of that was uh, I was listening to your aliens pod just recently, you know, and, and Ripley at the end of aliens, mm. she is, she's focused, she's scared, mm. but she is focused and she's going ahead and she's doing it anyway, you know, and she goes and confronts the queen and rescues, New- you know, and I think, you know, and to be around that is inspiring and to, and I've, Lived through examples in recent years, unfortunately, where that was the place where I had to be, mm. and uh, you know, it—it's amazing what you can achieve, and and the best—the best of humanity can be in these critical moments. I think. Mm
0: um if you if you look at the every possible emotional overlap in inside out that's the uh, chart with uh, uh five lots of uh combinations uh, there's each one um repeats itself because uh, you've got say sadness combined with joy is is as we say melancholy and so obviously is the corresponding point on the chart joy combined with sadness but if you look oh. at uh, that, that episode we did on um uh, we need to talk about fandom if you shut off joy because joy is very difficult to feel if you're feeling the other ones so hard all the time and like maybe your only moments of joy are when you are really really good at a video game and you beat it and get the platinum trophy and you're the best so that you might sometimes get that but if you're combining that with anger it's righteousness but if you take mm. joy out of the equation and you're not allowed to feel sadness you are left with double disgust which is prejudice disgust and fear which is revulsion disgust and anger which is loathing mm. fear and fear which is terror fear and anger which is hatred yoda would have a lot to say about that um, <laughs> And uh, anger and anger, which is rage. These are all, like, especially when felt only in conjunction with each other and never with the rest of them, these are all deeply unhealthy states of mind to be in, just flitting back and forth between all of these. And there's far too many people who are stuck in those modes. And that is deeply sad. It's almost double sad, which is despair. (laughs) Mm. Oh, interestingly enough, that thing I said before about feeling incredibly potent disgust and sadness—that's manifesting here as self-loathing. And I don't loathe myself. I was projecting that outwards and still am. It's mm. uh, that that doesn't adequately describe how I'm feeling, and and it, yet it isn't just disgust on its own and potent sadness on its own. It's definitely a blend. Uh, and I I can't quite, I don't believe there's a word in the English language about it apart from, and there's obviously anger uh, intertwined with that as well. And they're kind of pinioning around each other. This is why I have to feel joy intensely just to keep these things under control. This is why we do this every week and talk about films that we absolutely adore, because if I can love something that much, I can just about manage the disgust and the sadness and Mm. that's why we don't just do moany shows every week like our Dark Phoenix show which just came out um, where we rip into films that make us angry and sad we look for things that we love and I think that's a defence mechanism now Mm. uh, for for living when and where we do
3: Yeah.
0: This week on Patreon we have quick reviews of Men in Black International and Toy Story 4. Find out if that hits my very, very high bar of achievement for that particular series. You can download that if you're one of our patrons at the $5 level or above. And if you're at the $15 level then you get sponsor credit on every episode so a big thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, John Clayson, Tyler Long Adam Kilmartin Joe Seeger, Greg Downing Tim Rosinski Christopher Wolfe Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman Timothy Green Matthew A. Siebert Joseph Gluck Kevin Otero Luke Hatfield Nick Ord Duran Barnett Tom Painter Finbar Nicole Jameis Enright Mark Lutsch Dan Mayer Joe Crow Chris Finnick Toby Jungius Dave Hickman Aaron Lecluse Kieran Dachler and Lorraine Chisholm.
4: Hello, School of Movie students. This is Sharon Shaw. All of us, without exception, have two things in common. Number one, we all have something in our lives that we're not happy with, something that's bothered us repeatedly over the years and sometimes feels impossible to get past. It could be difficulty forming relationships. It could be a sense of feeling trapped in your job. It could be issues with your parents that just never seem to go away. And number two, all of us like to watch movies. Movies can help us process what's going on in our lives. Sometimes you'll watch one that just feels profound to you specifically. And we already know you're the kind of person who wants to dig deeper into that. Otherwise you wouldn't be listening to our show. But what if you could have some personal guidance in unlocking and examining why that movie means so much to you? It could be your all-time favourite or one you've just seen. It could be one you saw when you were tiny and it just stuck with you. I've been co-hosting this podcast for three years now, guesting for many more before that, and I've seen firsthand how our relationships to certain films can help us grow and work out who we are and who we want to be. What I'm now offering is the opportunity to explore what's affecting you through the lens of a personalised, focused movie therapy session. By now you're familiar with our commission shows, where listeners can ask us to cover movies that Alex and I wouldn't necessarily choose to delve into, and this is your chance to have a private, customised version, a way to self-analyse using a film of your choice as a focus point. This might sound complicated, but here's how we're going to do it. You bring a movie that has strong significance to you personally, and I'll bring my experience of film analysis and my qualifications in person-centred counselling, English, drama and media. And it's going to be really easy to start this off. You get in contact with me at sharon at movie therapy on That email is in the notes and we can discuss what film you have in mind and what aspect of your personal life you'd like to address. If that sounds good, I'll go away and watch your movie and then we'll be all set to talk about why it's important to you and how you could apply what you find in the film to your life, relationships and personal development. Just as with commissioned shows, my time and insight are what you're buying here. These one-off, hour-long sessions will run at $60 for the general public. But for this trial period, I'm offering our patrons a reduced rate of $45. Now, this is not going to fix your entire life. It would be ridiculous of me to suggest that. But what it can do is give you perspective on what's holding you back in a relatable way. Focus your intentions and give you a clearer view on the steps you can take to change things for the better. So that email address again is Sharon at movietherapy.onmicrosoft.com. Write to me with the movie you choose for your focus point, and we'll go from there.
0: Okay, guys, this has been, like I said, one of our, our absolute favourite shows we've ever recorded. Um, I'm just seeing colourful you. <laughs> You're very welcome. I'm just seeing colourful lines now, which I believe signals that Inside Out has finally reached the point of total abstraction.
3: Well, <laughs> so well
0: done, ladies and gentlemen. Uh we got there. Uh, now before we mm. go and decompress, Hunter and Amy, can you both tell us about Two Shrinks Pod? Take as long as you like.
2: Oh <laughs> well, Two Shrinks Pod. We well <laughs> uh, we uh, get together uh somewhat randomly at the moment. Um Time-wise, but we pick a topic, a psychological topic that and usually either look at the research or look at a lot of the theories behind it. Last year, we did a series on the personality disorders mm-hmm. and we culminated that with a if you like Harry Potter uh, diagnosing all the characters of Harry Potter with personality disorders, yep. which was lots of fun, but Otherwise. we kind of uh, take a just trying to trying to understand what goes on and trying to talk to people at a level that a psychologist talks to another psychologist about rather than sort of dumbing it down for people.
1: Yeah. And we try and sort of mix it up a bit between clinical issues and then sort of day-to-day stuff like we, our last one was on personal space. So we try and kind of mix things up a bit. And I think our next series will be on attachment, my favorite. <laughs> yeah. um, so we haven't worked out quite how many episodes we're going to do. I don't think it'll be as long as our personality disorder series, which lasted a long time
2: <laughs> it, was, it was only give you three episodes it was like 10 maybe. yeah
1: <laughs> but we'll figure it out
2: yeah yeah and yeah uh, you can find us at twoshrinkspod.com or on twitter at twoshrinks yeah. at, at twoshrinkspod uh, yeah uh, yeah well thank you
0: both for coming on our show i am fairly certain we can get you back on at some point to talk about something <laughs> similarly cerebral. I, I'm going to leave this one up to you guys. I will let you come to me with a film that you're like, you know what? Either you've covered this at some point in the past and we think you could do better, which I'm cool with. I, like Cause we went back to star Wars, the <laughs> prequels. And it's like, you know what? That was actually a pretty good, uh, like that. That was one of our best shows because back when we covered, say back to the future, uh, I wasn't really looking at it in in that level of depth. We talked a lot about the time travel aspects, but we could revisit stuff. Or if there's something we haven't done that you guys are particularly interested in, or if you see a film, you're like, "Do you know who would like this?" <laughs> then yeah, you come to us, and we'll uh, we'll see if we can pull the show together because this has been that. great.
2: We we we'll, we will think we will think about it. We also do have some thoughts on the ethical issues of how you would do therapy with a Jedi, but we'll uh, that's
1: true. talk yeah. to you about
2: that. As well. <laughs> <laughs> There may be a follow-up to that. We need to talk about
0: Anakin. (laughs) This is about ethics and Jedi.
4: It's it's not we need to talk about Anakin. It's we need to talk to Anakin.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, Sharon and I will be back in much less time than nine years to talk about another Pixar soon. And I know that for a fact because we recorded a show on Pixar's next effort after Inside Out, The Good Dinosaur, a while back. And we've just been waiting for the right week to put it out. So, that is it from us this week. I have been Alex Shaw.
4: I've been Sharon Shaw.
0: And school's out. this is mirrored in oh god I'm going as well sorry this
4: this is
2: it's i'm mi- so sorry
4: this happens so often <laughs> oh, it's, no it's great it's, yeah we're,
2: oh. we're like amy and i are, like seasoned professionals so like we don't like you know professional setting we just like nothing gets through to us but like mm. you get me alone watching a movie now and i'm um, eyeballed <laughs>
1: even, even some commercials really
2: Oh, yeah.
1: They get I watched you in 30 seconds. It, it's the Christmas it one.
2: Like a, the, oh, yeah, yeah, there was a Christmas one with a the family. There's this Australian banking one. It got me right at the start of something. Oh, awful. Banking Every made time. you cry. That's dirty oh, tricks.
4: Hey, they you all saw got the Lloyds one the other day with the horse and the baby yeah. horse. I was going <laughs> at that.
2: Okay.
3: Ripple <laughs> then